3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is episode 13 of Over the Wall. Today, we revisit Josh Cullinan, Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, to hear about the new penalties regime in that sector, to find out about how you can use the Fair Work Commission and the Fair Work Ombudsman and how to contact the union. Earlier this year, the Fair Work Commission set out its timetable for reducing Sunday and public holiday penalties in fast food, retail and pharmacy. Josh told us how this will be brought in over the next few years and how the soft start on these penalty reductions is easily unnoticed in the first year. So at fast food, it's from 50% to 25% over three years and it started with a 5% cut in July this year. In retail, it's a cut from 100% loading to 50% loading, substantial cut on Sundays, and that has started being implemented. It'll go over the next four years, so it's 5% this year, and then it's 15% each year for the next three years. And in pharmacy, it's a similar cut. They've also cut public holiday rates by 25%, and in fast food, they've reduced when the award penalty rate is paid at night from 9pm till midnight. It's going to be from 10pm till midnight. So those that would have been paid a 10% loading under the award won't get that until 10pm. Again, Domino's, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, KFC, none of them pay it anyway. In terms of wage rates, the 5% cut this year in retail was combined with a 3.3% increase in the minimum wage. The impact of that was that there was a slight increase in the Sunday rate. So again, it's one of the conservatives' attack lines is that there hasn't been an actual wage cut. Well, of course, there's been an actual wage cut when taking into account CPI. But in terms of the dollar rate paid to someone working on a Sunday, it went up slightly on the 1st of July. And so we have members in Chemist Warehouse, JB Hi-Fi, some of the bookshops. They don't have agreements with the SDA, so those workers get the award penalty rates. And they saw what should have been a full 3.3% increase on the 1st of July was about a 04 increase on the 1st of July. Now, at the moment, in all the major fast foods, so KFC, Red Rooster, Hungry Jacks, Domino's, McDonald's, none of them pay any substantial loading at all. And in fact, at McDonald's, there is no penalty rate other than after midnight on weeknights, and even that's lower than the award. So we say that the Fair Work Commission was able to make this decision knowing there'd be no backlash in retail and fast food because workers are shrugging their shoulders saying, well, we don't get a Saturday loading anyway. In order to understand the processes of the Fair Work Commission, we outlined to Josh a hypothetical case of Jane Doe, a worker who is suspicious she is not receiving her correct casual loading. He explained how she might proceed, also pointing out the peculiar legal status of back pay, 
the way employers may try to victimise workers pursuing rights and the advantages of union support. Jane Doe notifies a dispute to her employer. She can appoint a representative if she wants, but she tries to have a conversation with her employer and say, well, I should be beginning this casual loading. If the employer doesn't resolve that with her, she can then apply to the Fair Work Commission for the Fair Work Commission to conciliate the dispute. And what we would ordinarily expect is once the commissioner looks at it and says, well, she's a casual worker, she's entitled to these rates of pay, the employer will take the necessary action to fix it. In terms of back pay, the Fair Work Commission doesn't have a role. So the employer at that stage isn't actually obliged to fix it. It's just that it's now been brought to their attention and it's very difficult for them to abscond from that responsibility. Back pay, though, requires court action. And so that would be a small claim or some other type of court action against the employer. The problem with all of this is that if Jane Doe's doing it by herself and if she's a casual worker, it's far too easy for the employer to find other reasons to diminish her rights or diminish her security of employment. So, for example, I've worked in service stations on a casual basis where we were required to stay back 15 minutes at the end of a shift and to do the handover and reconciliation and count the cigarettes. I asked for the 15 minutes to be paid and I lost all my shifts for five weeks to teach me a lesson and to teach every other worker a lesson. The idea there would be that I would have to mount some kind of breach of my general protections and adverse action against me. And that is a court case. And without being able to afford lawyers, which most retail and fast food workers who are now being paid less than the minimum wage can't afford, it leaves them in an invidious position. There's no real action that they can take in that space. So we're very clear that for the Jane Doe's of the world, and we've got quite a few of those that contact us, our primary concern is for them to unionise their workplace. And when we say unionise, we're not talking about requiring 300 people to join the union, but at least a group of workers that will support each other, provide evidence for us as part of the process, and provide that necessary support when the worker gets targeted that um, is standing up for their rights. Moving from the hypothetical, Josh was eager to outline the actual case of one of his union's members who was subjected to workplace bullying by her employers after successfully winning termination of a workplace agreement. They repeatedly tried to alienate her from her fellow workers. We have a member who applied to terminate a Baker's Delight agreement. We tried to organise that workplace and we were able to only get very few members to participate. Unfortunately, in one respect, we went ahead with the termination That worker has now faced a series of consequences because of that, which are difficult for us to prove linked back to the application to terminate. All of her co-workers were made casual. The employer shows wage rates to the workers and they think that they're better off. Proving that they were misled is difficult. These workers weren't provided annual leave or sick leave as part-time workers until now, so they didn't know they had that right or that they were giving it up. In her workplace, all her co-workers have been made casual There have been impediments put in place for her to access annual leave and sick leave, and there have been pressures put on her about other parts of her work. They told every other worker that they can no longer have bread at the end of shift. They have to destroy all the bread at the end of shift. And they said it's because our member terminated the agreement. They contacted one of her co-workers and said, we can't come to your 21st birthday anymore because our lawyers told us that we couldn't be there at the same time as our member. And so our member got the phone call to say, oh, you can't come to my 21st anymore because the owners can't come. It's just those lies and nonsense which can get out of hand. The Fair Work Ombudsman is a parallel track to the Commission. Next, 
Josh explained the powers of the Ombudsman and its development. Historically, the Howard government, as part of Work Choices, established what was called the Office of the Employment Advocate, and they were imbued with the responsibility of managing uh, receipt of AWAs, and they also took up a role providing basic advice to workers. The Fair Work Ombudsman now provides a great deal of advice. A lot of workers contact it. It would have massive databases of complaints raised against employers. It provides a very basic conciliation and support process for workers um, and where there is egregious breaches of rights and the ombudsman decides it's in the interests of the ombudsman and the authority to take action, then it intervenes, including with inspections and eventually legal action. Unfortunately, in retail and in hospitality, many of the cases we hear about in the media are actually actions taken by the ombudsman, whether it's George Columbaris or it's 7-Eleven, the ombudsman has gone and done inspections, identified issues, raised concerns. Chemist Warehouse, for example, thousands of workers weren't being paid for their training. It was the ombudsman which went and intervened and required they be paid. Josh was keen to point out that while the government hoped that the ombudsman would start to take over union roles of advice and advocacy, unions are a crucial resource for workers. Grab your pencil because this is where you find out how to contact his brand new union. Workers can get in touch with the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union through our website, uh, which is rafwu, rawfwu.org.au. You can join there, find out information about what we do, all our campaigns. Um, we've also on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and workers can contact us on by phone, 1300 uh, RAFWU. Uh, so that's 1300 723 398. Um, or by emailing us, contact at rafwu.org.au. Uh, we're always keen to get more supporters and activists involved in our ranks. We come from all walks of life. Um, and uh, as I said at the beginning, we're, we're growing every day. Thank Josh Cullinan for his time and insights. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, uh, and we're on the line now with Tony Briffer, who is Deputy Mayor and an Independent Councillor of the City of Hobsons Bay. Tony is also Co-Executive Director of Organisation Intersex International Australia, and as a very busy person, we're very lucky to have Tony on the line right now to talk to us about a recent dra- raft of recommendations set by the UN Human Rights Committee, and also possibly the developments of mar- in marriage law, if we have time. Um, Tony, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be in your program. Oh, thanks for coming on. Um, so we'll get straight to it. Um, and just um, don't know where our conversation may lead. So um, just for folks yeah, listening, sure. um, just in case, there we'll put out a trigger warning for... Um, questions of bodily integrity and things like that. So if that's something that you don't think you can listen to, tune in in, in 10 minutes' time and we'll be um, moving on to a different topic. Um, so in its November 10 recommendations, the UN Human Rights Committee said Australia should legislate the, quote, end of irreversible medical treatment that is not absolutely medically necessary, end quote. Um, so, Tony, what kind of treatments are practised here in Australia and why do you think the committee recommends against them? Yeah, it's a wonderful recommendation the UN. Um, so just to yes, the listeners to be clear, um, people with intersex variations are people born with 
variations of sex characteristics that means that they're biologically not um, typically male or female, but you know combinations of, of both. Mm. Um, and what happens in Australia, even at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne, is that if a child is born, um, slightly ambiguous even, the doctors do, do whatever they can to ensure that they are as as heteronormative and as biologically one sex as possible. For example, if a little girl is born with a clitoris that is deemed to be too large, as a baby, without that girl's consent, they, they undergo surgery to have their clitoris reduced in size. No medical reason, irreversible treatment, and without that child's consent. As you said, this is a, a, a great um, recommendation coming out of the UN, UN Human Rights Committee. Um, but there was already, a, back in 2013, an Australian Senate inquiry report on the involuntary or coerced sterilisation of intersex people. Of course, that was about sterilisation, but there, there's, there's already a conversation in the Australian Senate um, about the rights of um, intersex people to, to their own bodily integrity and their informed yes. consent. Um, have we seen any progress in the way legislation or medical best practice has happened here in Australia since 2013? Sadly, sadly no. Doctors, hmm. doctors continue to claim that there, are, there has been improvements, but that is not backed up by any of the data. So hmm. other things, I mentioned reducing the size of a girl's clitoris, other things that they do, um, as was happening, happened, happened with me when I was a child, um, but it's still happening today, is that... Um, Gonads are being removed. So in my case, my healthy testes were removed when I was a child without my consent and for no medical reason. Um, and that is still happening today. The Senate had those wonderful recommendations in 2013. Basically, the, the Federal Attorney General said, well, that's great, but they're up to the states to, to implement, and the states have done absolutely nothing to implement them. Tony, this is Jackson here, another host. Uh, I just wanted to chip in. I saw a film uh, a few years ago called Orchids, My Intersex Adventure, which you actually featured in as a young person about two uh, intersex young people travelling down the East Coast and meeting intersex people. And I I just remember being amazed when I saw the film that the the number of people that are born in the way that you're describing is much higher than people might imagine. So these people that are having surgery um, done without their consent is, is quite a large portion of the population. It's not that uncommon, is it? Yeah, intersex is as common as 1.7, so about 2% of population, So, which is about as common as redheads. So chances are you would have met an intersex person, if not many, uh, over the years. It's just that the shame and stigma attached to being intersex is so great that most intersex people do not tell other people about it. Well, we, you... have, we have people in the support group whose own partners don't even realise it. You know, the, uh, the sex. Mm. And like you say, I mean, it's just been repressed. It's been removed before people can even have a chance to discuss what it means or what it could be in life. You know, it's quite, quite yeah. amazing. I remember just being yeah. amazed. Mm. Indeed, and um, there was a really good program on Insight that's available on YouTube now, and it was only a couple of weeks ago, um, where quite a number of intersex people in Australia were interviewed and on that program. It's I highly recommend it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, we might um, just sort of wrap this question up of the UN Human Rights Committee's recommendations. Do you do you feel they cover um, all of the major concerns for intersex people in Australia, or is there something else that they're missing? Uh, no, I think I think they I think it's very good uh, actually. So um, yeah, I, I, hopefully Australia takes steps to make the table.
Yeah, okay. Um, so the committee also made reference to the marriage law postal survey. The state, um, yeah. as um, to quote them, the state party should revise its laws, including the Marriage Act, to ensure, as irrespective of the results of the Australian marriage law postal survey, that all its laws and policies afford equal protection to LGBTI persons, couples and families, end quote. Uh, are you satisfied that, um, as an example of this, Dean Smith's marriage equality bill will achieve this? Okay, so the Dean Smith bill... Um, so the the audio quality was a bit uh, a bit poor a little earlier, but um, oh, you sorry. made you made the point of saying that um, the the bills that we're we're looking at right now cover only same sex marriage, and so we have either the option, as it were, of male and female marriage or same sex marriage, and that doesn't cover all variations no, of no, t- types no, of people. Sorry, the, 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 um, audio wasn't that great. Mm. So the government's kind of presuming a prejudice on behalf of the church and, and offering it to them exactly. before they've even asked for it. Mm. Exactly right. Mm. That's right. Um, so we, um, just coming towards the end of our interview, I thought I might ask about the, um, the sort of the media surrounding the marriage law postal survey that we've just come out of. Of course, we know the the result was sixty one point some six percent or something like that in in favour. Um, and so so it's it's quite heartening, I suppose, um, yeah. to hear that the the majority of Australians are in favour of marriage equality at least. But it's become more and more common for intersex to be included as the I in LGBTQIA. Um, to what extent do you feel included as part of the queer community in the context of the the Yes campaign? Well, I'm a, well, for a start, I am a member of the GLBT community anyway, mm. so um, I am part of that community irrespective of being intersex. Mm. Unfortunately, intersex is often included where it's not meant to be included, so if we're talking about sexual orientation exclusively, then intersex shouldn't be included because intersex people, a lot of intersex people are straight, for example, so it wouldn't be appropriate to include it. That said, the marriage equality or the same-sex survey result was fantastic. Um, I was very emotional with the results. I must admit, like many people around Australia, I cried when, when the result was announced. Mm. Um, yeah, I, we were we were attacked as along, along with the GLBT community during the campaign. Some some groups even said that you know why would people choose to be GLBTI and why would people choose to be intersex? Obviously, not realising what intersex is, and people don't choose to be 
That's right. Um, I think that's a good uh, good note to end on. Tony Brifferth uh, is the co-executive director of organisation Intersex International Australia, and you can check out the website for that organisation, oiiaustralia. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony. Is that dot dot org? dot org dot au. We'll definitely link that on our website. Um, okay. Tony Brifferth, thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. Okay. Thank you very much. Have a great day. See you, Tony. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm starting December 6th. This week is the beginning of the UN's global campaign of 16 Days of Activism to End Gender-Based Violence. This campaign is running from the 25th of November, Saturday just gone, which is International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, through to December the 10th, which is Human Rights Day. And we're joined today by Julie Kuhn, CEO of WIRE, the Women's Information and Referral Exchange. WIRE, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know, is a free service that provides advice, support and referrals to women about a range of issues, from financial literacy to domestic violence, divorce and legal matters, mental and sexual health, amongst heaps of other things. Julie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So, in solidarity with the UN's call for 16 Days of Action, WIRE are running an event in Melbourne today called Family Violence and Men's Alcohol Abuse, The Real Story for Women, based on research conducted by Ingrid Wilson, uh, the chair of WIRE. Mm -hmm. So, Julie, in broad strokes, what is the connection between men's alcohol abuse and family violence? It's important to start off by saying that alcohol does not cause family violence, that it is um, gendered stereotypes of men's um, domination of of men um, and feeling that women have their places to be passive and submissive that causes family violence. But alcohol is a contributor that makes the family violence worse, more likely to be deadly more likely to to cause severe injury and in that way it's very important that we talk about alcohol abuse and in particular we get the stories from women that are experiencing the abuse when alcohol is forming a part of that household. And this research conducted um, by Ingrid did inc- does include recordings of voices with women of a direct experience of alcohol in the home as well as violence. Have, have you been able to listen to some of those recordings or see any transcripts? I haven't heard the recordings, but I've spoken to, to Ingrid about it. Mm-hmm. And um, she has, has, has stated that you know, for for women, there can be a double shame, the shame that there is family violence in the household, but also the shame that there is a drinking problem in the household. So mm. women can have further barriers to, to seeking assistance, as well as a, um, feeling that their situation is not going to be understood or that their violence is going to be minimised because they're going to say it's a result of the alcohol mm-hmm. rather than it's 
the man that is being violent towards them. They just happen to be drinking. And so it's really important that we hear from these women so that we can look at what, how we can possibly, best possibly support them and, um, you know, work towards preventing um, family violence. There was a really interesting new thing, you, uh, thing you said in response to my first question that while alcohol plays a role in exacerbating mm. or um, extenuating the violence that already existed, it's more mm. stereotypical ideas about the roles of men and women that can lead yeah. towards gendered violence. Can you expand a little on that? What kind of stereotypical roles are you talking about? There's a lot of, in our society, there's a lot of messaging that men are the aggressors they've got and they've got a right to be aggressive that men are dominant that they are doing their natural things when they are being dominant and aggressive whereas women are more seen as the carers the ones that are passive the ones that um, listen to the man rather than being equal to them and so Family violence is often a result of that dynamic playing out of the the man playing out that that dominance, and it can be through physical violence, it can be through sexual violence, it can financial violence, um, verbal violence. There's a whole lot of ways that that violence can manifest itself, and we're not going to live in a world without family violence unless we address those gendered drivers of family violence. So you can remove all the alcohol in the world. That won't prevent family violence. You need to look at those gender drivers. So why did you decide to run this seminar uh, during the 16 days of activism? Why was it important to, uh, to WIRE to put this on? For us, it was really important because it's been really difficult for the family violence sector and for women affected by family violence and having alcohol in their household to talk about their particular situation because for so often when you talk about family violence and alcohol there'll be a whole group of people that minimise it and say that it's the alcohol, not the individual or they might blame the woman because they may have consumed alcohol um, and so... And also that that fear that people won't see the gendered aspects of family violence and instead just look for a quick fix, which is remove the alcohol. And as a result of that, women have been silent. So why is all about amplifying the voices of women mm. and the voices of women affected by family violence, where there's alcohol in the in the household, have not been truly heard. And it came out through the uh, Family Violence Royal Commission that this was something that we needed to talk about. We needed to tackle the really issues that are hard. This is a hard issue, and WIRE is prepared to take that on, even if it's um, controversial, and even if we need to tackle some of the myths about alcohol causing family violence. We, we need to do that so we can move past it. 
Yeah, you, you raise a good point there that, you know, with the Royal Commission into Family Violence and with the um, the fantastic work of a lot of wonderful advocates in this space and some, you know, mm. incredibly brave people who've come forward to highlight uh, a lot of different abuses around gender, um, whether it's domestic mm-hmm. violence or sexual assault. How is this regular, more regular, I should say, public engagement helping to change the work that WIRE does and how is it affecting your plans for the future? I guess as CEO, you're kind of best place to answer how your strategy is changing in this new landscape where we are we know we are seeing the mainstream media cover these issues in a way that i can't really remember in my lifetime would you would you agree with that Uh, i don't think it's i don't know how old you are but i can't remember a time myself when it was um so much so prominent in the media and in a positive way Mm. And never has there been a time when so much government money has been devoted towards family violence where we're starting to see that family violence can be prevented and that's what we need to work for. It should not be an accepted part of any woman's life Mm. that they're experiencing family violence. So there is more money and so there is more ability to, to look at solutions. We're also looking at family violence... And, and seeing other minority groups that have been affected, so the LBGTIQ community, so looking at the family violence in the transgender community within same-sex relationships, also looking at how um, family violence intersects with disability and other um, factors as well. And that's really important because different cohorts of women have different needs. It's not a one-size-fits-all And I think that's another thing that's important when we're talking about um, alcohol abuse is here's another cohort of women that may need um, a slightly different response. And and so, again, that's also important that we've got a government that's prepared to put all those things on the agenda and fund them. So what will we see next from WIRE? Do you have some campaigns coming up you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, we, we do. Look, we, we, I, sh- I should add we currently have a fundraising campaign mm-hmm. um, called um, Wire There For You. And if people go to our website, www.wire.org.au, you can donate. But Wire is also doing an awful lot in the financial abuse space. We're running um, research projects and doing training around understanding women's relationship with money and um, how... Our society needs to change, our structures need to change so that um, women have equal financial security to men and also what women can do to improve their financial security within a system at the moment which really does disadvantage them. So for our listeners out there, that fundraising campaign is hashtag wire there for you and that's spelled W-I-R-E-T-H-E-R-E the number four, the letter U. Uh, so if you type that into Twitter or Facebook, you're going to uh, see some of the work that Wire are putting out there. Look, uh, thank you so much for yep. joining us this morning, Julie. We and are out of time. We do have, no, go I ahead. Add, so. We do have a telephone support line, one three hundred one three four one three zero. Any woman, any issue, don't hesitate to call us. That's right. That number again for our listeners is one three hundred one three four one three zero. That's wire the women's information and referral exchange. Any woman, any issue, it's a free service. Do give them a call. And thank you so much for joining me this morning, Julie, and best of luck for the future. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. I appreciate it too. You've been listening to a three CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station three CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.